Every year, on the second weekend of June, my father Dagger, who's a musician as well as a farmer, packs up his instruments and sets off from the farm to drive two hours west along the shores of Loch Ness and through the Great Glen to the west coast of Scotland, where him and his bandmates catch a small foot ferry across to the Isle of Egg. He only plays one gig a year with the Yamaha Cayley Band, the annual party to celebrate Egg's Independence Day. In 1987, the community of Egg successfully bought their island from a private landowner, and since then, Egg has become possibly the most iconic of all the community land buyouts that have happened across the west of Scotland over the past 25 years. I've often joined my dad to celebrate with the islanders, and Egg has become an inspiration to me. This was the very first place that made me think that there could be different ways and different possibilities for how to go about owning, governing, and managing land. This is Landed from Farmerama. Part four, places of possibilities. My name's Col. I'm a farmer's son from the Scottish Highlands. For a long time, I've been working towards a vision of a just agroecological future where food production works in sympathy with the rest of the natural world, whilst making good, nutritious food that's accessible to everyone in society. The goal was always to find a way of farming that's good for our ecosystems, good for biodiversity and good for our climate, while at the same time making food that's healthy, affordable and convenient. This is not where I see us heading if we continue on our current trajectory. We're already starting to see an even greater concentration of land ownership, a widening gap between factories of food production and uninhabited wilderness, and deepening inequities in access to good food. I used to think the small family farm was the answer, but this past year I've been delving deep into the legacies of the landscape around me, and I've started to question some of my long-held assumptions. By digging where I stand, here in the Scottish Highlands, I've started to understand how the family farm can be seen as a colonial concept. I've learned that before the family farm, there was an indigenous relationship to the land in the Highlands that was very different. This practice of collective management across vast territories was destroyed just a few hundred years ago through colonial processes. The intentional destruction of indigenous Gallic culture and the privatisation and parceling up of land that this allowed. But the trauma that's embedded in the Highland landscape as a result of this is just one manifestation of a global pattern of trauma, much of which the Gales and other Scots were themselves responsible for as we plundered and profited from the dispossession of other cultures and their lands in the name of empire building. The legacy of this lives on in our overwhelmingly white rural spaces, and we need to start to heal this trauma. We also need to find meaningful ways for more people to connect with and live on the land if we're going to build a positive agroecological future 
that's accessible to all and has racial equity at its heart. We need to begin to imagine ways to move towards different types of landscapes, post-colonial landscapes. And I can't help but feel that time is running out. The average UK farmer now is 59 years old, and many don't have clear succession plans. Family farms are already disappearing very quickly, and it's likely that huge amounts of farmland will be coming onto the open market in the next decade in a way we've not seen for generations. The price of land means that there are very, very few people who will be able to bid for these farms, and so we get locked into this pattern of consolidation, intensification, and concentration of ownership. So, how do we move forward? We have a very short window of time to come up with some fairly big answers. Luckily, we don't have to start from scratch. There are ideas, not only in our past, but in our current legislation and land practices here in Scotland today, that if harnessed in the right way, could hold some keys to a just agroecological future. I guess there's two things about the scale. One is that that is the natural scale and the way that our ecosystems work. They work because they are joined together. So you can't take it apart and say, okay, well, I'm only going to concentrate on this part. It doesn't make any sense because it is a system that has multiple parts to it in order for it to work all together. Dr. Marion Bruce is a biologist, farmer and distiller based in Perthshire, who is part of an initiative called Bioregioning Tayside. A bioregion is a place defined by its natural features, such as geology, topography, climate, soils and watersheds, and so on. Marion and others aim to build community resilience by working at this landscape scale, rather than the fragmented political or economic boundaries of councils, constituencies or individual properties we tend to use today. But I suppose the other point about scale is that actually given that we are at this moment of crisis in both climate change and biodiversity loss, that actually we need to be acting on that kind of scale in order to have sufficient impact to address these problems. There's no point actually just thinking about a small scale level. But I think what's interesting is that from looking at these sectors from the outside, that not everybody's talking to each other. You know, there's plans going on within agriculture, there's plans going on within conservation, there's tourism plans, there's forestry plans, but actually none of them are integrated. And by thinking it about it in a bioregional way, it's a way of thinking, I suppose, that allows you to recognise the role of all of those different elements in a landscape scale approach, but also, and really importantly, allows communities and people who are living in the bioregion to collaborate and come to a shared plan as to how to do that. After speaking to Marion, I couldn't help but see the parallels between the landscape scale of bioregions and the old Highland idea of territories I've been learning about. And it struck me that these traditions may hold some useful lessons about how to collaborate at scale to tackle these big modern challenges. Whilst clan territories no longer exist, there still are some pockets throughout the Highlands and Islands that have managed to maintain some elements of how this system would have worked. 
Elfin is in the northwest of Scotland. We're not on the coast. We're one of the few townships that's actually not on the coast. Helen O'Keefe moved to Elfin from Australia six years ago in order to croft. The area that we live, the Northwest Highlands, has the lowest population density in Western Europe. So it is a very sparsely populated landscape. There's some lovely stunning hills. Most of the rock is very old and relatively flat and very poor ground. There's huge expanses of mostly bog, and bog is a good thing, so we don't hate bog here. Bog is lovely. With small townships, and they're usually crofting townships, scattered throughout. A lot of the land that people see and they just see as, as wild land or you know untouched land has actually been farmed and managed by people for hundreds and thousands of years, and most of it is still actually under active management today. I asked Helen to explain to me what crofting is. Crofting is a form of land holding in the, mainly the north and the west of Scotland. So generally what you have is you have small townships with a series of, of small fields by the road and around the houses, and then a large area of common ground further out behind them on the hill or along the beach. So the, the fields themselves are what we call the crofts, and then each croft comes with an associated share of the hill ground. So your croft might give you the right to graze 50 sheep on the hill. So if you've got two crofts, you can have 100, you know, that type of thing. Probably almost all of the land is privately owned by large landowners, most of whom don't live here. But most of the land is also under crofting tenure. So what that means is that the people in the villages who own crofts and have the rights to that common grazing, they don't own the land, but they have the agricultural management of it. So crofting is a very specific legal definition and there's a, there's a whole act or several acts written about crofting law. Crofting as a system was first written into law in 1886. At the time, the goal was to give tenant farmers better protections against evictions and unfair treatment they'd experienced since the fall of the clan system some hundred years earlier. This law is sometimes seen as marking the end of the era of Highland clearances. Today, there are around 20,000 crofts across Scotland. I asked Patrick Krauser, the chief executive of the Scottish Crofting Federation, to explain to me how crofting differs from smallholding or farming and what the basic principles of crofting law are. Most smallholders are freeholders. They just own the land, whereas crofting still is predominantly tenanted and the law was designed for that relationship between a landlord and a tenant. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will think, yeah, but if you've got the chance to buy it, why wouldn't you? But that's sort of a mentality that we just have in society, that we want to own things. And I think crofting is very interesting from that point of view. Even though crofters can buy crofts, most don't. There is actually a very strong feeling still within crofting that the idea of ownership of land is a bit sort of strange why would you need something that says you own a bit of land if you have the right to use it for grazing your animals or growing your crops then that's fine patrick talked me through the basic principles that give tenants or crofters their security of tenure he told me that it's very very hard to remove a crofter from their croft and the laws are there to give this protection another important protection is that the rents are controlled they're set by the crofting regulator, so the landlord can't just keep jacking up the rent. 
And if the crofter thinks that the rents are unfair, they can appeal to the land court. What's more, if a crofter has to, for whatever reason, leave their croft, the landlord has to compensate them for any improvements that they've carried out on the land. And a final principle is that the tenancy is heritable. So if they want to, a crofter can pass on their tenancy to their children or have a say in passing it to someone outside the family too. And then in return for these protective regulations, the crofter also has some responsibilities. So they have to keep the croft in good heart. They have to use it in the law. It's called purposeful use. I think a lot of people look at a regulated system like this as something very good because, you know, the people that are using the land can feel fairly secure, but also they're obliged to use the land for a purposeful use. As well as these legal protections, something else that sets crofting apart from smallholding or the family farm is that cooperation and community are at its heart. It is still how crofting is supposed to work. You know, you can put in woodlands together, you can do agri-environment schemes together, you know, you can choose to manage the hill ground together. And, you know, the cattle and the sheep are out there together, so we could look at how they grazed, and where we grazed them to improve the land together. In the fields themselves, again, most people have their own fields, although people will borrow other people's fields at particular times of the year. You know, the sheep need it for lambing, the cows go in at a different time sometimes. This is a hybrid model, combining individually managed fields and small crofts with the collectively managed commons. When the original crofting laws were being formed, it was recommended that townships rather than the individual crofts were recognised as single units. And until relatively recently, it was very common for this to be the way that townships functioned. So the way the crofting set up, when you look at the practicalities of it, We've got small fields, which we can use for our own exclusive use. And then we have a hill ground that we have to manage communally. We've got a grazing committee that sort of manages that and shareholders get to vote on things. These communal hill grazings are excellent working examples of the commons. In 2009, the Nobel Prize for Economics was won by Eleanor Ostrom for her work analysing and documenting how commons across the globe are governed and managed. This recognition has generated a surge of interest in the commons as an idea, what they mean and how they work. The common grazings, which are a key part of most crofting communities, have their own sets of rules and regulations and governance principles, and they've been managed communally in this way since crofting townships were established many centuries ago. Typically sitting at or near the coast, Traditional crofting townships usually have croft houses arranged in a linear fashion along a road, and each one of these will have an attached croft of a few acres of fields for private use called inby. And then beyond this would be a more extensive, rough, communal ground called the outby. And that comes from back when they were set up, when it was people living and working together a lot more. And that is probably a key difference between how you'd normally see crofting and how you would quite often see small holdings because a lot of hill farms or or even small holdings you know you're often trying to put the house as far away from the other people as you can and it's very much a you know an individual kind of isolated system whereas crofting particularly in the north and the west and the isles where it's you know it's much more in its traditional form 
it was the township working together to get everything done. So so that sort of centralised but then shared outer areas was, you know, it's a fairly key part of it. The other thing about crofting is it's generally on really, really poor land. So we can't farm a lot of the stuff that they do on, on farms and small holdings further south. Crofting today is only found in the North and West Highlands and also the Western and Northern Isles. As Helen says, crofting is almost always limited to very poor and marginal land. In spite of this, these crofts can be incredibly productive, but it takes a whole township to work together. Although this collaboration is hard-coded into the crofting model and culture, this sense of cooperation has drastically declined in recent decades. In 2020, Helen was named Young Crofter of the Year, and she's part of a new generation of crofters reviving and reinventing this spirit of collaboration in the 21st century. So everything from the croft here, we sell directly to customers. So I sell the meat from my sheep directly to customers, eggs, and also the vegetables. One of my neighbours in the township here, she's got pigs and cows and also chickens and ducks. And she's also been selling the meat and the eggs directly to customers locally. There's a lot of other people who grow a lot of vegetables, really, really amazing vegetable growers. So a couple of years ago, we got together and we decided we needed another outlet and we started a small farm shop in the cafe that we have here on site. And we had this idea that as a collective, we could do more. When COVID struck, Helen and the township decided to pivot and set up an online shop, working together as a community under a single brand, the Green Bowl, which is Elfin's nickname. The goal was to try and give as much flexibility and as much convenience to our customers as possible, because that's really important to have people buy local food is, is to make it as easy as possible for them. We were producing this amazing food here, and that's partly what crofting has is traditionally been about, has been about producing food for families and for townships. And I really felt that we could showcase that in Elfin and show people how much food a crofting township can produce. Helen believes that by working together as a township, new possibilities have been unlocked. Possibilities that individual small holdings or small farms simply don't have. One of the biggest things about working together, particularly for the smaller producers, it's not viable for them. So someone growing vegetables in their backyard, it's not viable for them to set up a website, do deliveries once a week and do all the marketing that goes with that. I mean, that was one of the original reasons of trying to start this collective thing was just that instead of us all competing and all telling the same story, we could do it all together. But one of the biggest things is, is just the economy of scale and that you can't, you can't run something like this economically or effectively at a smaller scale. But it also hopefully means that in the future, particularly, we can share information, we can share resources. You know, my neighbor's getting a tractor. I don't have to get my own tractor. My friend's got a chiller unit. You know, we can use that for the meat. You know, the guy with the amazing vegetables gives us seeds every year because he's got extra seeds. The whole idea about working together, on our own, we're all too small. Everything's too expensive. There's no bulk discount orders. You can't, you can't justify delivering things or going to pick things up. Whereas together, there's less work. We're combining the workload and then we can share things. Finding new ways to deliver healthy, nutritious food in affordable and convenient ways to a lot more people is going to be a lot of work. Most farmers are already working as hard as they can. 
And we can't expect every farmer individually to be able to produce great food, market that food, deliver and sell that food in ways that are viable and can affect a meaningful system change. If we instead think of the township as the unit, like what's happening in Elthin, all of a sudden we may be able to start to unlock all sorts of economies of scale and spread the workload. And this isn't just the growing. This is the distribution, the packaging, the cooling, all this sort of stuff. If you then expand this out beyond just the single township and think about it at the landscape, the bioregional or territory level, it gets even more exciting. Imagine you have a number of townships working together, delivering nutritious meals to all sorts of people. All of a sudden, you start to unlock even greater economies of scale. And potentially then, there could be a way to do all these things. To do the seemingly impossible. There might be a way to deliver good food in affordable, accessible and convenient ways to everyone. Crofting isn't the only form of collective land management found in Scotland today. Over the past couple decades, several pretty innovative land reform acts have been passed by the Scottish Government. They give whole communities, rather than just individuals, the mechanisms to organise themselves and to buy land. Now, all across Scotland, not just in the Highlands, we're beginning to see communities creating new models of owning and managing land, and challenging our ideas about what's normal and what's possible. The Isle of Egg, whose celebrations my dad is always a part of, is just one example. Whilst this approach has mostly so far been taken in the crofting communities of the Highlands and Islands, more and more we're starting to see this idea of community ownership of land spreading across Scotland and even becoming normalised as an idea right across the country. At this point, roughly 560,000 acres of land are owned and managed by communities, with around 25,000 folk living in these areas. Adam Callow is a postdoctoral researcher at the James Hutton Institute in Aberdeen. Originally from the US, Adam has been drawn to Scotland precisely because of the potential he sees in land reforms here. I've been most excited about the way Scotland attempts to be shifting the narrative about what land is and how it's used, in particular that land ownership and land use are connected. The phenomenon of land ownership has deep implications for what things are done on the land and who benefits and who wins and who loses. Over the last you know, many decades of the World Bank, the, the main policy was to formalize land relationships, right? To give people property rights where there were none before, so that now they're in control of their own destiny, they will behave as economic rational actors, right? It's completely profound and radical to say the opposite. And so I think that opens up a lot of possibilities to think about if we want some societal outcome that is easy to express, you know, health, good food, life expectancy, uh, economic opportunities, that's connected to the way we engage with the resource base, right? And usually those things are just totally separated. You have 
maybe one of the only places in the so-called global north that has the land policy to maybe shake things up at a structural level. Scotland as a nation has the highest concentration of land ownership anywhere in Western Europe. In fact, it's thought that fewer than 500 individuals own over 50% of the land here, and a mere 16 people own 10%. These land reform acts have been brought in to try to dilute this in some way. But while community buyouts are starting to happen across Scotland, they tend to be focused on housing, energy projects and woodlands. What we haven't seen yet in Scotland are these acts being used explicitly to enable communities to purchase agricultural land, explicitly for agricultural purposes, to grow food and to create opportunities for new entrant farmers. I would love to see creative use of these land reform tools to shake up profoundly the agricultural sector, the food production sector. I think by design, some of the community buyout legislation, the land reform acts, tended to separate agriculture from kind of land in general. But it doesn't make sense to separate land use, you know, from, from land and land ownership. They're just, they're intertwined. The acts say, you know, if you're using land, owning land in a way that tends to harm the public good, then you might be subject to these kinds of compulsory buyouts. I see it exactly the same if a large estate owner is not pursuing land use that benefits their very own tenants, not to say much of the neighbors. That's the same as an agricultural owner who is overusing pesticides or who is selling only for export when there's a nearby demand for local food. So the same, very same logics of why land should be transferred to communities in the Land Reform Acts applies in some cases to this agricultural context. So what if we combine the existing tried and tested Highland model, crofting, with this new movement of community ownership of land we've heard about? and applied it to prime agricultural land outside of the poorer quality ground of today's crofting areas. What if areas of good, fertile farmland adopted the key crofting principles, secure tenancy arrangements for tenant farmers, access to areas of common land, and with whole townships working together? And what if we then used the principles of agroecology to manage this land? And what's more, we now have legislation in place where the community itself can be the landowner. These ideas are not only possible in law, but they have proven to have worked and are working well. It seems to me that in Scotland, we potentially already have really compelling tools and tenure systems that could enable us to recreate and reimagine the pre-colonial landscape and to tackle the really big issues of today. As existing farmers begin to retire or throw in the towel, could this be a way of taking advantage of the upcoming flood of agricultural land onto the market? When large, medium and small farms across Scotland begin to come up for sale, can we think about them as potential new crofting townships? Could we see new tenanted crofts being created on good farmland, in areas where this practice was stamped out centuries ago? But rather than having a clan chief or an individual owner at the top, it's the community that own it. And critically, could this also be a way to create opportunities and make land accessible to new entrants, to ensure that everyone who wants to work on the land has the opportunity to do so? At the moment, the legislation tends to be set up to enable communities already living locally to use the legislation. Whilst there are good reasons for this, 
It can also exclude others who are not already in rural locations to be part of the conversation and to make the most of this new legislation. I wonder if we could expand this model to other communities of interest, such as communities of colour, and make this a truly inclusive, reparative approach. I asked Dr Callum MacLeod, the Policy Director for Community Land Scotland, what he thought. There's definitely a conversation to be had between communities of interest and communities of place as well in terms of how we actually encourage more diverse land ownership and particularly as well what we're doing with the land. It's very important that debates and dialogue around land itself should not be the preserve of an exclusive elite or indeed particular people of particular backgrounds. I think it's really vitally important that we do have an inclusive, equitable approach to having conversations about land, who owns it, how they use it, and critically, who benefits from ownership and use of land as well. You know, you can connect that absolutely to issues about social inclusion, issues of gender, ethnicity, and all, all these different dimensions so that we do get equality across the board in terms of ensuring that all people in the community are benefiting from initiatives that are taking place. And we've seen lots of examples where there are really progressive, socially inclusive initiatives that are actually being undertaken by community landowners in that space. There needs to be a lot more of that, and I think it provides a model where you can start to think about that. Implementing agroecology at scale will require a lot more people a lot more skills and knowledge that needs to be brought back to the land. If we're talking about repeopling the landscape, then there is space for everyone. Communities of place, by which I mean the people already in these rural communities, need to be connecting with communities and individuals from elsewhere and engaging in these conversations to help make these places inviting, welcoming and open. In amongst all these discussions and big ideas, there's a big elephant in the room. We're talking about potentially huge transfers of land and movements of people into rural places, creating enterprise in an industry known for its tiny margins, low pay and precarious profits. Where on earth is the money going to come from to fund any of these ideas? The food discourse is often separated from the land discourse. And when we kind of combine those two things, I think that's where the, the broader structural solutions come out. I think the financing innovation that I see as promising is really around the kind of value chain side of it. I think there is room for reorienting how much society pays in terms of the various elements along the food chain and, and for how it values food. There's got to be a middle ground between Tesco and the, and the CSAs, right? In July 2021, the National Food Strategy for England was published, an independent review commissioned by the UK government. This National Food Strategy included a raft of recommendations, including that fruit and vegetables be prescribed on the NHS, and extending free school meals to millions more children. These policies could reorientate public money in a way that could potentially really strengthen agroecological supply chains all while addressing the real challenges of food inequality and diet-related health concerns. Imagine the avoided public health care bill that could potentially be diverted into the production of nutritious, agroecological food, growing the market for environmentally positive produce that is not priced out of reach for those who would benefit from it the most. While the National Food Strategy recommendations focus only on England, 
Here in Scotland, a piece of legislation known as the Good Food Nation Bill is soon to be debated in Parliament, which, if passed, would enshrine a right to food into law. So if parents of school children are demanding, rightly so, more nutritious lunches, and that, that's an entitlement, this right to food, but then it's done through an import you know, plan, it would be much harder, but much more exciting and transformative if there were goals of meeting those procurements from you know, the peri-urban systems, right? You actually have a municipality working together to mobilize public resources, but then also provides a market of solidarity. That's new farm agroecological labor just waiting to happen, waiting to fill that gap. All over the UK, there are serious moves that suggest public money should be used to tackle food inequity. That could be through procurement or other market-growing mechanisms. But there are also huge changes coming in agricultural subsidies, shifting to incentivise environmental land management. Another huge portion of the public purse, which has currently been looked at for the first time in decades. Almost £600 million of public money is being spent in Scotland already in these subsidies. And for decades, much of this was being received simply for owning land. By matching some of the land policies with the food policies and rethinking the best use of this money, big changes could be possible. Now let's imagine, just for a second, that all the prime agricultural land in Scotland were to be bought by communities. That's about 46% of Scotland. If we take all of this good fertile farmland together, I reckon the total value is somewhere in the region of £34 billion. Now, even if it's only a small percentage of this land that comes onto the market, there are going to have to be serious innovations of how we go about financing this. Currently, the primary funding for community land acquisitions comes from the Scottish Land Fund. Which at the moment, annually, has a budget of £10 million per annum. Now, that's a really welcome policy lever, as it were. But you're absolutely right. That in itself is not enough in terms of trying to, to address this overall And so if we're going to talk about a just transition, we do need to think about the financing dimensions of that, and particularly how we get communities involved in that process in ways that are going to benefit them as well. Some of that, I think, is around broadening out the range of investments so that you get a mix of public, private and other dimensions to that. I think we mentioned things like crowdfunding. That's one dimension of it. I think there's an important part to be played by other NGOs. I think there's a whole range of things that you could frame within a, not least a kind of corporate social responsibility frame that actually would meet those quite sound investments in, in some respects, while ensuring that communities actually are able to control and have the significant say in terms of what happens to the land in their communities. How to fund these changes isn't something that's going to have a quick, straightforward answer. But there may also be another option. According to La Via Campesina, an international movement representing over 200 million small and medium-scale producers, agricultural workers and indigenous communities from around the world, an agrarian reform cannot be carried out through market mechanisms. In every instance where there's agricultural land that has the ability to foster kind of deep human environment interactions and sense of place, 
the disconnection between that land as a commodity needs to happen and it needs to happen as quickly as possible, right? So in what ways can they gain access to the land? Now that that first step always involves, and that's the way the Scottish acts are written is through compensation, right? So you're always paying out the original owner. But then afterwards, can we rewrite the rules about how that land is treated as an asset and, and in particular, one that's not financialized and not treated as a, a liquid commodity? Because it's not, you know, land is not like a map. You cannot roll it up and take it away. I've come to believe that most farmers have a connection to their farms and the land which goes much deeper than just it being a financial asset or something that they own. The land is what farmers have put their lives into. And if they're able to, most farmers want to do what they think is best for the land. In this, I think there could be the kernel of something profoundly transformative. What if farmers without a succession plan had an alternative to selling up and putting their farm on the open market. If they knew they'd be supported in their retirement and that the land that they'd put their life's work into could continue to be tended and cared for. What if farmers could gift their lands to communities? This seemingly radical suggestion actually could have some pretty mainstream precedents. Leaving property to the National Trust, for instance, who happened to be one of the UK's largest landowners, with nearly 250,000 hectares of farmland. Isn't that unusual a thing to do? Much of their land has been gifted to them in a similar way to what I'm suggesting. Is it so radical to imagine that this could be possible at a regional or local level, to transfer land into community-owned farms, townships and territories? There are already models that exist elsewhere in Europe which have demonstrated that when an existing farmer leaves their farm, this kind of process means both they and their land will be well looked after. This idea doesn't have to be a terrifying one. But of course, for this to be an option, there needs to be a community to gift the land to. Community groups who see this as an opportunity would need to start organising themselves, connecting with one another and with farmers and landowners. After all, in order for existing farmers to see this as a serious possibility, communities and aspiring farmers also need to take it seriously. As with almost everything I've been finding, it comes down to making connections, identifying commonalities, finding common cause and working together to imagine something better. I believe there's a chance that these ideas could not just be feasible, but really desirable. But we'll only start to make them happen if we find new ways to work together. It comes down to people and it comes back to the overwhelming conclusion of, you know, we can achieve a lot of these solutions with greater collaboration, whether that's within landscapes or between farms or within food chains or within sectors. There's a lot that can be gained and resolved in terms of these overarching kind of international crises if we get more people working together. That's Will Fraser from the Food, Farming and Countryside Commission. And so it's all of this kind of, yeah, connective tissue, which I think we could really start making some really rapid progress on you know, some of our national goals. If our end goal with all of this is to move entire landscapes into agroecological models of farming practice, 
which are highly productive whilst leaving space for habitat and biodiversity, whilst delivering healthy, nutritious, good food, conveniently, affordably, accessibly to everyone, and at the same time, get a lot of people onto the ground, onto the land in dignified, meaningful and well-paid work. This is going to take a deep transformation that is way beyond the scale of the small family farm. Do we need to be addressing these issues more at a landscape scale? I think, yeah, increasingly we're arriving at the answer that absolutely yes, but the route to that answer is, is through our people and, and our communities and having a more grassroots sort of bottom-up approach perhaps. But I should also make it really clear that existing family farms are absolutely part of this. Family farms have a huge role to play here. This isn't about pointing fingers at family farms or small farmers, but there's a need to recognise that in order to be part of a change towards a just agroecological future, we need to see ourselves as part of something bigger than just our farms and to begin to work together with other family farms and potentially these new types of crofting townships. Once you get into that mindset and that way of thinking, you suddenly think, well, for this to genuinely work across my business, whatever size, it needs to be working within my whole local landscape. So I need to be having a discussion with all of my mates and neighbours next door about how do, we, how do we do this? And we can only really do this really well together rather than apart. Because ultimately, if I'm just an island, as a business surrounded by other people that are doing things going in the opposite direction, then it's a sort of hiding for nothing. The exciting thing is, the beginning of this change is starting to happen. Earlier this year, a series of events right here in the Highlands was held under the banner of the Highland Good Food Conversation. Over the course of five weeks, more than 90 farmers, crofters, food business owners, NHS nutritionists, school teachers, Enthusiasts and eaters came together online to try to imagine what actions we all would need to take in order to make healthy, local food the norm for everyone in the Highlands. For Emma Whittam, one of the organisers of the conference, one of the biggest takeaways was people's eagerness to link up and to begin to find new ways of working together. I feel there's this real shift that people realise it's no longer about individual businesses or individual people. It's actually the power that we've got by being connected. And I think throughout the conference that sort of grew that sense of interconnectedness that exists between us all. And the food system is so, for me, it blows my mind. It's so infinite. It's connected to absolutely nearly every single part of our life. And I just felt that thread just coming through that conference of people realising that every single one of us is part of a huge system. And it's only going to work if we all work together. I've spent much of the last year delving into the past, present and future of the family farm. I've learnt a huge amount and it's confronted and excited me in ways that I never imagined. From where I am now, looking forward, what could all this mean for me and for my family's farm right here at Inch and Down? In all honesty, I don't know. I kind of feel that I've unearthed more questions than answers along the way. But what I do know is that we need to start to have a lot more conversations about these things. About farm succession, about our connection to the landscape and the legacies of its past, and our hopes for its future. 
Whilst our family farm here at Inchin Down doesn't have an imminent crisis of succession, that doesn't need to stop more people, different people, people I'm not related to, becoming engaged with the land here. We're going to have to have a lot of new conversations. Conversations that may be unfamiliar and potentially uncomfortable, but they are necessary. Throughout this series, I've chosen to look at these topics from the perspective of the Scottish Highlands for no other reason than this is where I'm from and where I plan to spend my life. If I happened to be from somewhere else, I'd look at things from the perspective of that place. In fact, wherever you are, I'd encourage you to start asking the kinds of questions I've been asking over the course of this series. To start digging where you stand, to understand the hidden histories of your place and the clues it could hold for your future. When talking about history, and particularly the uncomfortable parts of our colonial history, some people have said to me, this stuff happened hundreds of years ago. It's in the past. Let's just draw a line under it and move on. To which I say, move on to where? Figuring that question out requires us first to look back and then to look around us. Time may be running out for the small family farm, and we need to start thinking about what we want our landscapes to look like, to provide and to be in the future before it's too late. I may not have landed on any perfect answers, but what I hope more than anything is that this series is a starting point, a launch pad for these conversations, rather than a conclusion or any kind of end point. So to farmers and landowners out there, you have so much power to affect change in so many ways. You are the custodians of the land and you have the ability to bring about great possibilities for positive change. Please be open to these conversations. If you are somebody who wants to farm, this doesn't need to be an impossible dream. Find your community, organise and speak up so that farmers and policymakers can hear that there is a demand for an alternative trajectory. If you're in Scotland, speak to Community Land Scotland, who have tons of resources on community buyouts. If you're a black, aspiring farmer or person of colour, look up Land in Our Names, who are already organising in this space. Most of all, to everyone, start talking to each other. Connect with your neighbours and collaborate with communities to reimagine, together, what your landscapes could become. Landed is produced by Paul Gordon and Katie Revel with executive producer Abby Rose. Our project manager is Olivia Oldham. Huge thanks to Josina Callist for her guidance and input, and to Sarah Nicholas for all her help and support. Thanks also to Joe Barrett. The music for Landed is by Dagger Gordon and me, Cole Gordon. Funding for the project was provided by the funding platform Necessity. Farmerama is committed to keeping all our episodes free and to paying our team a living wage. To do so, we rely on the support of you, our community of listeners. 
If you'd like to help us make more podcasts, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash farmerama. This episode featured Marion Bruce, Helen O'Keefe, Patrick Krauser, Adam Callow, Callum McLeod, Will Fraser and Emma Whittam. Thank you.